Hi, and welcome to Drafting Compliance. I'm Kane, he's Tom, and in our last episode, we talked about maintenance. Today, we're going to be talking about contingency planning. But before then, we're going to be talking about beer. And Tom, um, just as a point of interest, I was recently in Boston, where I think it was the Samuel Adams Brewing Company. I will say they have a pretty good brewery tour if you're interested in the history of beer. But um, that's not what we're actually drinking today, is it? No, definitely not. I will say a shout out to that beer tour because I've done it as well. It's a great tour and some good beer at the end. But no, today we're drinking Lapping Lab Scottish Ale. So let's see the can. Got a, a a puppy on both sides. One's bigger than the other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm it's predisposed a... to like it, not because it's um, got a dog on, but because it's Scottish and I'm Scottish. Yeah, so maybe that would be a good fit. Yep. Uh, someday we'll do a, a full length. Um, drafting compliance where we see you maybe we'll sit at some chairs or something and we'll show off the kilt because I, oh, I, 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 yep. I, I do get to see the kilt occasionally and that's that's something we're showing off but no this this beer comes from Bristol Brewing Company which is I, I believe in Colorado Springs Colorado I remember driving by it before so hmm. I'm, I might be going out on a limb there but I believe that's where it's at it's of the Scottish ale variety which is going to be interesting we haven't tried anything like this Kane so this could be this could be the one so let's crack yeah, this beer. I haven't tried anything like this before. We'll have a go and see how, how it plays. And it's not a fruit beer, though. At least that's definitely a not fruity. No, no. Scottish ale is malty, not fruity, not hoppy generally. Well, here we go. Oh, I mean, the viewers color. are getting to see my my beer pouring my beer pouring skills are improving throughout these episodes. I think. We'll pour. Okay, there color. we are. Man, we've got ourselves a. It's a nice brown. It's kind of a, actually. I would a golden. Go, yeah, kind of a golden amber almost. It's a. It's a pretty color. It's got a nice head on it. I smell well, it. It's a little yeasty. On the nose, it smells kind of sweet and kind of well. It smells definitely like beer. <laughs> yeah, I get I get uh, sweet and I get bread yeast. Maybe a, little, maybe a little bit of baking spice, too. Something like that. Anyhow. Oh, very soft mouthfeel. Soft and a little chewy is what I would, how I would describe it. Definitely got some sweet to it. This is not hoppy at all. This yeah, is it's very not multi. hoppy. It's, it's sweet. It um, kind of got a caramel, maybe? Yeah, Something like sure. that. Caramel or, or burned honey. Um, it's inoffensive. Let's go with that. It is inoffensive uh, so far. I would say, I would go so far as to say it's delightful. It's It's got, um, it's really got a lot of character without any hop in it, which is not, to me, is not a typical um, characteristic of beers without hop. Usually I find them sort of boring. So this is very malty. It's got a pretty complex flavor profile. You know, you, you name some of them, the caramels. But you've got some burnt coffee in there. I think some honey is is right. The mouthfeel is unique to what we've we've drank to this point, Kane. So, you know, it's it's it does coat the mouth, but it's very soft. Well, I, I'll have to check the tape in the end, but I don't think I'm pulling faces at this one. So perhaps You're not. that's a promise. Perhaps I that's a promise. Yeah, I'm amazed. <laughs> 
Well, with that, well, let's, let's enjoy move a beer on to and our, talk uh, FedRAMP. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about FedRAMP while we enjoy while you enjoy your beer and while I contemplate mine and my life choices. So to start <laughs> off with, let's um let's just Tom, if you could explain to our viewers what exactly the contingency planning domain is under FedRAMP moderate and what it covers. Sure. So business continuity planning is another name for contingency planning. So, you know, I think that term is pretty well understood in the in the realm of everybody who works in technology, but if it isn't, um, contingency planning covers, how do you recover your critical mission and business systems in the event of a larger than um, disaster recovery exercise? So, you know, disaster recovery is often a sort of a feeder to business continuity. At some point, often in a disaster recovery, you may declare business continuity. Mm -hmm. So this takes disaster recovery, certainly a number of steps further. So this is everything associated with making sure that you've assessed the risk and you have built out the capability to restore your critical business systems in the event of a, a large failure of some kind, whether it's a natural disaster, man-made, can be any, any of those things. But regional, regional is a big, a big one as well. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of this is traditional uh, business continuity planning and BCP, which I think many of us have done over the years. Um, so knowing what goes into a, well, so I, knowing what goes into a BCP, um, let's step back and try and figure out what are the key elements that have to be included in a contingency plan according to FedRAMP moderate guidelines. Yeah. I mean, the, the simple thing is to think of it as in, in terms of documenting the environment. So do you have, do you have the doc, the document that leads you to understand how, how and what order you're going to recover systems? Mm -hmm. Do you have alternate sites identified? So like, for instance, in our mm -hmm. case, we have an alternate site uh, it, with Azure. Do you have alternate storage as well? So, you know, in some cases you're recovering from an on-prem data center. So if you're going to another data center where you've set up your, your BCP your contingency plan, you've got to have extra storage in place. You have the telecommunications bits and pieces in place, not only the ability to, um, it's actually a requirement to have emergency services, but also you have the ability from a, a connectivity perspective, right? So if you're running off of a gigabit Ethernet connection somewhere, are you are you duplicating that capability or duplicating at least enough of that capability to keep up critical business systems? So it's all of those pieces, but it's also training roles and responsibilities and making sure everybody understands what role they play when it when the time comes. And and then of course it's testing and training on those things. So it's it's pretty comprehensive, but again, it isn't anything that should should surprise anybody. Okay. And, and something Tom and I recently did is a tabletop exercise based on our incident response plan. Um, and thinking of just testing, uh, Tom, could you talk us through some best practices for testing and revising contingency plans under FedRAMP moderate? Sure. The, the first thing to understand is the, the type of test that you're going to perform is determined by what level of FedRAMP um, ATO mm -hmm. you're aiming to be. So we're, we're aiming for moderate. We still have to do a live test, which I would absolutely suggest you should do anyway. Um, business, business continuity planning, it's really difficult to have any sort of sense of, of confidence in that plan if you don't actually test the bits and pieces in a real world scenario. Mm -hmm. This requires it. The, the, I think the official term is functional exercise in FedRAMP. Um, so you have to do a functional exercise. But... Of course, you want to stretch 
uh, your comfort zone and you want to restore pe bits and pieces that you maybe not know for sure if you have the, the documentation around it nailed down. This is going to help you drive to a better documented plan. So it, certainly as you go and test those things, you want to document all the successes and more importantly, all the failures that you've had. So you can go back and strengthen your documentation and your processes around uh, those failures. Uh, FedRAMP only requires an annual test. Um, certainly as you, as you mature, I would suggest you test bits and pieces more frequently than annual, but FedRAMP oh, yeah. only requires an annual. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's a really good point there about increasing the frequency um, as an organization matures. I want to rotate back on something else you said around um, training and I've seen training get revised as a result of testing actually. So uh, what role does personnel training uh, play in effective contingency planning under FedRAMP moderate? Yeah, for sure. You're going to want to designate all of the roles that are primary responsibilities for uh, key pillars within your business continuity plan or your contingency plan. So for instance, you might want to have a communications lead. I certainly would recommend it. Um, you're going to want a technical lead who, who manages all the technical bits and pieces that um, are occurring underneath you. You also probably want to have an HR lead that helps manages the stress and the burnout of people um, and, and helps them understand what role they can play in a more effective way. So as you as you determine all the different key roles that are going to be in there, those folks have to be trained on on the plan and the policy both. So that's pretty easy. You you put it in an assessment a uh, system of some kind and have them read through it and attest their understanding. You can quiz them on it. That's pretty easy. But where you really gain is is your first test with that group. So as you run through a test, that's another type of training. They start to understand their role better. They certainly understand um, what difficulties they, they might encounter in a real test or in a real uh, scenario, and, and they start to sharpen their skill set underneath the test. So the testing piece of it, I can't underline enough. It's, it's a critical piece of it. Yeah, and I, I like that you also talked about um, human factors, not just technology factors there, like burnout, because having been through disasters and incidents, that's a consideration that has to come into play. I want to go back to something else, though, that uh, maybe dispel a little bit of a myth that I've still heard around cloud, which is, well, it's in the cloud. You don't need to take a data backup. And you and I know that's just not the way the world works. But as a cloud-only organization, um, what measures should be in place to ensure there is a data backup? And how does that fit into overall contingency planning under FedRAMP? Yeah. So you have to have a primary and a backup site. So having a single threaded cloud provider is not going to cut it with FedRAMP. So for instance, we, we put most of our resources in um, Azure East, um, United States. We have our, our backup facility in Azure West, and we replicate data on the regular basis, right? I think it, it forks it, actually. So it's a pretty up-to-date backup. Um, and you have to show the contracts that are in place that designate that as a backup site. And you are asked under FedRAMP to also negotiate in your contracts for priority, where it makes mm -hmm. sense to negotiate for priority. So, for instance, if you know in a in a disaster your primary data center is going to have is a co-location facility with fifteen other clients in it, uh, you might want to negotiate based upon the criticality of your system to be at least you know number five on that list, right? 
Uh, that usually comes with a cost, but it mm -hmm. makes sense. But it's completely dependent upon the the given information system and its criticality to, uh, I would say, the the business of of, uh, of its client base. So understanding that is is particularly important. But FedRAMP certainly spells those things out. You know, you also want to make sure you have in place that data uh, backup as well. So it's uh -huh. it's not just hey, I have a compute backup space, but I also have my storage there and I have my connectivity there at the same time. Okay. And now speaking of things that FedRAMP spells out, you also brought up another term earlier. So we've talked about a primary site. We've talked about a backup site. Um, let's talk about the concept of an alternate processing site and how it's significant in contingency planning in FedRAMP audit. And particularly because we're a cloud-only organization. <laughs> Correct. So an alternate... Um processing site is really, it's talking about the compute power that you have. So it's, it's asking you to make sure that you not only have a backup, which you know, a, lot, a lot of people have backups without the, the ability to restore it to a secondary site. Mm -hmm. So while it, it, while it absolutely designates that you have backups in, in alternate storage, this is really giving you requirements around compute and making sure you understand that you need to think through those requirements. So from a processing perspective, can you, can you, recover into a capability that's maybe a bit degraded. That's something you need to think through uh, because having the capacity available um, for whatever level you intend to restore to is critical. You have to have predetermined that and pre-built out that capability. That's really what um, processing sites are all about. It's, about. it's about the compute side of the world. Okay, all right. And so that's a fairly robust um, planning process that we have to go through and it's fairly robust in terms of what we have to document and what we have to maintain and train to uh, but i know that a lot of our organizations we work with don't just do FedRAMP, right they have other requirements and other regulatory other uh, security requirements they have to meet so as we tor get towards the close of this um, let's talk through how contingency planning under FedRAMP moderate aligns with other significant cybersecurity frameworks or standards that organizations might already be using. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the first thing I'd like to say, Kane, is best practice for 20 years at least has told us we should have business continuity planning in place. Mm -hmm. And certainly as, as somebody who's lived through both a derecho, well, all these things, a derecho, a tornado, and a catastrophic flood. I can tell you that these events happen more frequently than most people think. So because of the best practice stance of, of business continuity, it's been built into many of the programs that people are familiar with. So for instance, if you're a PCI compliance, um, if you're underneath PCI compliance, you're going to have this requirement. Certainly if you've deployed NIST, you're going to have this requirement. If you're a GLBA, um, financial institution, you're going to have this requirement. You know, I, I was thinking about this, Kane. The only major uh, regs that I can think of are the ones that focus on privacy and, and, and data ownership. Those are the only ones I can think of that don't have the business continuity piece of it built into their, their program. So really, then, the, the good news is that if an organization is deciding, hey, let's, let's go towards FedRAMP moderate, 
they're going to be able to reuse at least some of the intellectual property, some of the assets they've already defined, just they're going to have to line and cover against the level of detail required in FedRAMP moderate and maybe make some small adjustments depending on how architecturally they're approaching FedRAMP moderate for like that backup site or their alternate processing site if they've got, uh, I don't know, if they're using an enclave, so they've got their commercial side of the house and their, their FedRAMP side of the house. Is that about right? So a lot of this should be reusable? That's accurate. And the, the thing I'd remind you of, Kane, is, is this a, is applicable to your authorization boundary. So in many cases, your business continuity plan is going to go above and beyond your authorization plan. So this is really very specific. It's about the information system that you're providing uh, use to clients that need FedRAMP compliance. So um, it's, a, it's often a subset of your existing DCP plan. Okay, good, good. Well, I think a lot of this then feels pretty familiar. Um, I think we've covered off on the topic quite in quite in detail, though, of course, if viewers still have questions, drop a question in the comments or reach out to us. And uh, with that, let's move to beer reviews, Tom. Well, uh, let's, boy, let's you've, compare. you've certainly drained down yours quite a lot. <laughs> that's not the first you time can, that's happened on this show. Yeah, but you can tell I've been enjoying this one. This one is particularly good, in my opinion. I mean, I'm, I'm having a sniff of it now and i'm getting um in addition to everything else there's a molasses to it I agree yeah those those um sort of rich dark smells those are all pretty common with roasted malts which the color indicates we have roasted malts here this also might seem like a small thing but um, you know how you can get various sparkling waters or sparkling wines. This has got very small bubbles, if at all. Like it, it's, you can see a little bit of the foam, but it's not nearly as assertively bubbly as some of the yeah. other things we've had. And I think that's what might make it a little less um, sharp of a taste. I think that's accurate. It That's common with Scottish ales. They're not known to be highly carbonated. They're, they're known to be a little less carbonated. So that, that tracks really close. You know, Kane, I am impressed with the the control in which you've had over your face with this uh, this particular beer. So I am dying to know how how have you how have you uh, ultimately uh, pointed this beer out? So before I give that number, and as I think about it desperately, I want to address one of the questions that people ask me in person about the show, and a few people have emailed me. Um, I don't pre-test these beers. This is a live review. This is the first time I have ever had this particular beer. I think that's been true for all of ours, though some of those, Tom, you've had before at least, so I have no prior exposure. Um, for me, I, I realize I'm giving relative to other um, beer, not relative to other things that I've drank. Um, so I'm going to give this a five out of a possible nice. 10. It's not something that I would definitely seek out. It's not something that I'm going to keep in my refrigerator. But if I was out with friends and uh, this was the only thing available or water and it was, oh, I don't know, the yard arm was the right time of the day, I might actually think about this. Wow. You put a lot of thought into that. So that's great. I, I'm going to take a little different approach. So I think everybody knows by now I prefer hoppy beers over any other beer. But in terms of a Scottish ale and the look, feel, and taste of this one, it's really good. So it it is an approachable beer that I could drink with friends almost in any setting. So I'm going to give this an eight. I think it's really good. And I would seek this out. And I certainly would, uh, uh, if I'm ever in Colorado Springs, stop by the brewery and pick up a six-pack. 
this is a particularly good beer in my Fantastic. And with that, that's all for today's show. So please do like and subscribe for more of this content. And thanks for watching today. Thanks.